0: That there is a, a, a revolution uh, set loose by Christ's resurrection, one that is undermining and undoing the powers and principalities that utilize death and decay to rob us of our inheritance, to rob humanity and creation of its glory. And so this revolution has started in Jerusalem, and what we have this morning is the last of the narratives that Luke tells about the early church in Jerusalem. We're going to move out and about uh, in the rest of the book of Acts. Jerusalem uh, will be referenced later on, famously in 15. But this is the last story of Jerusalem as the center of the church. It's one of those amazing things, that because of the nature of the kingdom of God being about the entire world's restoration, that there won't end up being one central religious place anymore. In fact, as we look at church history, it's going to move to Antioch, and Antioch is going to do an amazing thing in seeing the kingdom of God spread. They're going to support Paul. They're going to do an amazing work. They're going to drive the church. In fact, in a few chapters, Jerusalem is going to be a place that is the recipient of mercy from the rest of the church, and its leaders have to have their doctrine corrected by Paul. It refuses, Scripture does, to certainly locate in one earthly place a center of power, but that the church and the Spirit blows as the Spirit will, and the church of God grows in all seasons as the Lord leads. And so what we have here is the transition from these amazing days in Jerusalem where we have seen the kingdom of God resurrect the understanding of the nature and power of the kingdom, the beauty of the temple, and how the temple now is becoming living stones. And all of these views of the law and the understanding of being Jewish have been confronted by the apostles and largely, to this point, among the leaders of the temple and the leaders of the Jewish uh, community in Jerusalem. But we're going to have a change of venue, and we're going to see one more conflict that arises before the church spreads out throughout the world. But let's put the text in front of us. We're not going to read Stephen's sermon this morning, but we certainly will go back and look at it in the future. But we want to first look at the context of Stephen and the end result. So I'll start in verse 8 of chapter 6, and then we'll jump to the end of chapter 7 with the unfortunate end of Stephen, or, well, it seems unfortunate. Verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Caesia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom. Or the Spirit by whom he spoke. When they were secretly, pers- uh, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, "We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God." So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses and testified, "This fellow never stopped speaking against his." This holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was the face of an angel. And then moving to the end of chapter 7, uh, verse 54. When they heard this, that is the end of Stephen's sermon, they, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At that they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed to him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that this very dramatic and painful story would be used again to give us vision. Vision of heaven. Vision of what you are doing as the kingdom of God grows. And Lord, may we be encouraged. Please protect the preaching of your word that anything said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, Lord, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, for the younger children who are still in the room, I heard last week that people remember Randy's story about the camel sticks in your head. But I thought if you've got a little bit of paper, You could think about two things in drawing what these things mean to you as we go through this sermon this morning. First of all, what did Stephen see? That passage we just read where Stephen says, I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How would you draw that? What would that look like for you? What do you think Stephen saw? And then secondly, another opportunity is, what would it be like? What do you think it was like when Stephen met Paul a few years later in glory. These two men were going to meet each other again. So what would it be like for two people who on earth, let's say, didn't get along very well, but were going to spend eternity together? What would it be like when Saul, who becomes Paul, walks into glory and meets Stephen already waiting for him? So again, just play with those ideas as, as we go through the sermon, as you think through, because those are two strong images in the midst of this sermon. I want us to talk this morning about visibility and how we can see, because throwing stones is dangerous, particularly when you're throwing in a thick fog. You never have any idea what you might hit. And there is a reality that we all walk through life with limited amount of vision. I don't know if you've ever been like on a, on a mountain or uh, perhaps even in the valleys here, but it happens more dramatically often at higher elevations where you'll be walking through a fog and you ascend to a certain level above the fog line and you see the immensity of creation. For, uh, For most of the hike, you're only seeing four, five, six feet in front of you. You just, you can't see very far. You can put one foot in front of the other, but there's limited visibility. Pilots, Uh, And we'll talk about how far is the visibility. And the optimal, of course, is as far as the eye can see. Then you can see what's coming at you. You can see uh, to fly safely. There is a reality that for most of us, most of the time, we can't see that far. And we certainly struggle at times seeing what God is doing in and through creation and in and through the events that we see around us, many of them confusing and difficult and painful. There is a lack of visibility, but there are some pretty amazing things that Stephen sees in this text that give us hope for what is going on in the midst of God's plan, as convoluted or as uh, veiled as it may seem to us and how we might have perhaps just a little bit more vision for that next step as the fog clears and Christ is more and more made manifest in our sight. So this morning, uh, I want us to think about what it means for this man, Stephen, to be a martyr. Originally, the word martyr meant one who is a witness, who sees something. And so it's not just someone who dies but it is uh, for a cause but it is someone who saw clearly and gave witness and testimony to what they saw and the tragedy of course is that when Stephen gives witness to what he saw it's more problematic to have a witness and in classic mob style the witness is done away with because the witness witnessed the truth So two things that I think Stephen saw clearly that inflamed the mob. First, he sees history pointing to Christ. That sermon, as we go through it, of course, points to the ways in which God, through each season of the Jewish people, through Abraham and Moses and the patriarchs, through Israel and the kings and the faithfulness of the prophets and the rejection by God's people of the prophetic work, regularly pointed to Christ. And that conflicted with the freeman's understanding of the history of Israel. Now, who were these freemen that Stephen is ministering to? He's not ministering, if you notice, in the temple courts. He is not at the temple. He is in synagogues in the Greek quarter Of Jerusalem, ministering to the freemen. And the freemen, historians tell us, were largely uh, either themselves slaves who had bought their freedom or had served their time, or they were returning from uh, various captivities. So, like in 63 uh, BC, uh, Pompey swept through, uh, slapped them around a little bit, took a few of them to Rome, and their children and grandchildren would have returned. Jerusalem and they would have had that background of uh, being in various regions of Asia or North Africa, depending on where their slavery took them. And so these were folks who had been a part of the diaspora, who had been away from Jerusalem and with every fiber of their being and in fact risking their lives, had returned to Jerusalem and the imagery that was so important to them, one, of the temple itself the place where God dwells amongst his people. And so to be in Jerusalem and to be able to go to the temple was of great significance and weight to them. Some of them probably spent their whole lives either trying to get there or it would have been a consolation and a solace to them for the years that they spent in slavery someday. In fact, the Zionist movement uh, before Israel was formed in this uh, last century, this century's, fly by. It's not this century. It was last century. Next year in Jerusalem was the regular Passover greeting to one another before Israel was formed. Next year in Jerusalem. And so you have a very near and dear and core value. Jerusalem, the holy city, temple, the place where God dwells with his people, the promised land itself, a land flowing with milk and honey that was given to Israel, that was promised to Abraham, that had been lost for so many centuries, had not been free for generations. But to be in the promised land meant so much. And to be able to return from the diaspora, from exile, and to be again in the promised land meant a great deal to the freemen. And lastly, who God is. The God of the Old Testament. One God. Understood in a particular fashion. His holiness and his otherness and his unique love for Israel. And Stephen's exposition of the ministry of Jesus Christ and what it meant to a transformed understanding of Jerusalem. Of the role of the temple of the transition out from a geographic holy land to spreading throughout the entire world. And a God now who has a son and trying to understand this theophany, this not just theophany, but incarnation and the absurdity of it the challenge of it, the affront of it, that God would actually make himself to matter, become one with his creation in such an intimate fashion. It's no wonder, and I think we need to be gracious, it is no wonder it was hard to hear. For people who had no power, had no authority, these are not those who ruled. These are those who came and believed in those core identities of what it meant to be a faithful Israelite. And in many ways, Stephen begins to undermine that understanding, their worldview, their culture, the images of things that they venerate and honor. That's not a human trait that we have outgrown. We can still become nostalgic for those things. Things that have meant important uh, and encouraging things to us in the past, but we give them a status that transcends God's call on our life. We allow them to become contrary to God's calling in our life, to pull us back to things that, quite frankly, we don't need to go back to. the response usually to an undermining of cultural views and values tends to be fear and anger. It's always a good litmus test for my understanding of the gospel. That when things that I have known, things that are familiar, things that I delight in change, how do I respond? I may lament their change. There would be nothing wrong with a Jew saying, you know what, I understand this new teaching about the temple, and it's a beautiful imagery of living stones." but my stars, I'm going to miss the temple. I love the beauty of that space. I lament the change, but I understand that God's plan is bigger and grander. That's the sensitivity in the heart of the spirit that allows God to continue to lead both religiously, socially, and culturally to advance our understanding and the implications of the gospel. It doesn't mean that we have no thought or care for those things that have gone on before. The beauty of Israel and its rolling landscape and the drama of it going from the Mediterranean through a deep valley, one of the deepest valleys in the world, up to these amazing mountains. The the beauty of that land. The promise of it. Stephen wasn't suggesting that it shouldn't be a place that you enjoy living or that you don't love living in Israel more than you lived, loved living in Egypt when you were a slave. That's not the issue. The issue is the very identity and significance that lets me know I am different than the other person. This is how I have value. This is how I know I'm right and you're wrong. My identity becomes that land. My identity becomes those cultural observances. And those cultural observances, as they become different than the calling of the gospel and the ethics of the kingdom of God, can and should be let go of. Stephen reveals history in a transformational light, pointing to Christ as the king and the development of his kingdom and calling these wonderful folks to understand that their attachment is going to rob them of understanding the kingdom of God as it's revealed. So we are called not to be nostalgic not to discard our history either because how does Stephen preach his sermon it is based on history and many of the good things that God has done yes he's pushing his listeners hard yes he wants them to see the transformative power of of who Christ is and what it means for the Messiah have to have come and the king to reign and nonetheless he builds it on their history honoring the reality of the patriarchs and what God did communicate, but also reminding them of the challenges where their forefathers and mothers did not follow the teachings of Moses. And their exile was because of their rejection of the call and worship of God. Not nostalgic, not discarding. Evaluative through the lens of the gospel. And in any time and in any era, that is our calling. It was interesting when we were uh, talking a few years ago in Romania about how as the churches looked to adopt more and more of the orphans, the old historic divisions between the Roma, the Gypsies, and the Romanians welled up again. Their lifestyle of, of... more traditional farming in Romania and stable life versus the Roma who tend to, well, Rome and are all over Europe, but come back to the regions in Transylvania and Romania uh, during the winter. And of course, there are some negative stereotypes about gypsies. And as they thought about adopting children, they initially were nervous about adopting Gypsy kids, because, of course, biologically, they were all going to turn out to be either thieves or pickpockets or fortune tellers or other ways of making a living. And these are good, godly people who were being stretched to do something, and it was over the course of about a year and a half, as they studied through the reconciliation passages in Paul, that the pastors in Arad began to understand that even that cultural misunderstanding needed to be transformed by the gospel. That that difference between the us and the them, to not worry about being seen with a gypsy kid or eventually making friends with gypsies, which is not easy because they stay withdrawn. They know their position in the society. And to not worry about what their friends might say as they fellowshiped with somebody who was historically not a people group that they should associate with. It's how we understand the history of our own churches and their interaction, how we understand the importance of our doctrine and yet grieve over the divisions that it has caused in friendships. We can look back on so many things and say, Lord, those were good things that went awry. They were not the way you called them to be. Stephen gives an opportunity for people to see. The challenge is when we see, we often don't like what we see in the mirror. We don't like it. Which is why the second thing that Stephen sees is so important. He sees heaven and the throne room. Now the scholars point out that the reality is that that is not that he saw something very far away that there is a real sense in which Stephen saw it in that very courtroom. That is to say, as he stood before the unjust accusations and the trumped-up charges, God gave him a vision by the Holy Spirit of the courtroom, the throne room that was superseding. It's almost like that passage in a, a, of Elijah. Where uh, he wants his servant to see that even though they're surrounded, there is a bigger army surrounding them. And it's not because the army just appeared, it's because that army was there. And he just couldn't see it. The reality is, heaven is here, we can't always see it. God is not far off, but because of Christ, the division between heaven and earth is being decreased as we uh, sang and prayed this morning. So that what Stephen sees is that in the midst of an injustice, there is one who meeds out justice, the ultimate God creator and the risen son standing next to him. And that is in the same room. A dimension he cannot see. The spiritual and the physical are right next to each other. But most of the time we can't see it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. God is not absent when injustice comes. He does see those who promote injustice. They will not escape. We'll talk about Stephen's response in that regard in a second. But who's really in charge? As we see history, as we reflect on our own lives and culture, who is ultimately in charge? we often use the chaos of a given time as an explanation for actions which are out of accord with God's character and nature, out of accord with the ethics of God. The times demanded that we be, well, something else. But who's in those moments of history? Is God really absent when sin and death seem more powerful Do we have to shake hands with sin and death as those moments simply to survive or are those the moments as Stephen does where we say, no, I see heaven and therefore I can go through this. This is not the end. And God is in charge and I can let myself be trusted in his hands. I trust him to lead me through. He's following Christ. Not the values, Uh, Not what is beautiful, but what is transcendent. And to be given a vision of the spiritual at that moment allows him to see clearly, coming through the fog, this is the way things really are. Not this pain which is real, but not ultimate. Not this betrayal which is real, but not the last verdict on who I am. Not this injustice that will shape the rest of my short existence in his case. But some of us live for years with the repercussions of physical or emotional injustice. That to others may seem trite, but to us they still shape our souls. Some significant for all to see. But he sees heaven, and he sees the throne room. And he can go through the injustice. He doesn't end up saying, why, why can't I get what Peter got? They just sort of walk through. Why can't I get out of jail? Why can't I preach the same sermon and I'm going to end up this way? And Peter and John, what, do you like Peter and John more than you like me? These are all things that I would do if I was Stephen. I would have a very quick conversation with God about why it seems significantly unfair that I have to be the first martyr. But of course, what do we see? We see the actual real martyr. He sees Christ. He knows his death and suffering on his behalf. He understands the reality of the gospel. And in seeing Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, as Paul will later write, amazing. Just think. He witnesses it. He sees what Stephen goes through. And he will later write amazing summaries in Philippians and Colossians about Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a serpent. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and is able to see clearly what he is actually going through. So the fog is all around us. It's unwise usually to throw rocks In the midst of the fog, we we teach people that when we mountaineer. You never know where they'll land or who they'll hit. You can only imagine what it felt like to be Paul on the road to Damascus. To see himself the one standing at the right hand of the Father. To have it revealed to him what he had done. And to do so in the midst of being redeemed. Come meet the man who told me everything I've ever done. Nothing of Paul's actions were hid from him, but in the midst of that, the grace and overpowering love of God breaks through even to the one who witnessed the stoning of Stephen and gave approval. Because once we see grace, the real grace, we cannot do anything but extend grace. Which is what Stephen does. He sees the grace of God. He sees Christ himself. And in uncharacteristic fashion, and then characteristically, there are numerous recountings of this in Josephus and older documents, that a tradition for Jewish martyrs, and there had been many, was to say to their torturers, to say to their persecutors, keep torturing me because God is a God of justice and you will get yours and he will avenge me. It was their comfort. And let's face it, there are many Psalms which do hold people accountable for their wickedness and their sin, that there is a just judge. But the beauty post-Christ is we know who took all of the injustice. It was Christ himself. And so Stephen, at that moment, being able to see Jesus, says something that only Jesus had said to that point. Jesus says at his own crucifixion, forgive them for they know not what they do. Interestingly enough, not a terribly traditional Jewish thing to say at your martyrdom. And Stephen, having seen Jesus, having again known the goodness of his God in his eyes, is able to, by the grace of God, say the same thing that his Savior said to his persecutors and to his executioners. Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Paul heard those words. No doubt, they were a comfort. In his own days of wrestling with, I am the chief of sinners and I know what I've done. But God's grace is greater. It is an amazing testimony to the power of the gospel to transform our lives on every level that it will absolutely shatter all of our old cultural fears and anxieties and biases and angers that drive us to separation and violence towards each other. And the gospel and seeing Christ at the right hand will transform that and allow us even in the midst of others' anger, to respond with the grace of God because we can see clearly the one who has borne all injustice for us and now leads us in the glory itself to the throne room of grace, to our peace, and to a new creation. That is the hope. That is the promise. That is what Stephen sees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you that you are gracious. And we thank you, Lord, that even as we struggle to know what needs to be removed from our hearts, that what needs to be transformed, that we might see the goodness of God, that we might speak the same words of love and grace, even as we say true things about the dangers of sin, Lord, we see it so clearly in Stephen's sermon and his testimony. Lord, give us the wisdom too to speak boldly into our churches and our culture, and at the same time, Lord, to respond with grace and mercy when anger is stirred. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.